Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. We are continuing this series of studies through Luke's Gospel, and this morning we come to chapter 9, verses 46 through 48. Luke 9, verses 46 through 48. Please give your attention to God's word. An argument arose among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. In a year that has been full of extremely divisive political rhetoric, we finally, this past week, have been able to achieve full bipartisan agreement on one thing, that the disaster, the disaster that was called a debate on Tuesday night was a debacle. Everybody I talked to was embarrassed by that debate, except probably the ones who were involved in it. Instead of intelligent dialogue about political principles and strategies and vision, what we got was 90 minutes of bickering, rudeness, name-calling, and boasting. No matter what you may think of the role that Chris Wallace played as the moderator, you had to feel sorry for him, as one person tweeted after the debate was over, Chris Wallace's debate performance tonight is a great reminder that kindergarten teachers are underpaid. <laughs> we may have been embarrassed by those who lead us and pro would propose to lead us in debates like these, but we really get what we deserve in the American culture because that's how we deal with issues these days. There's very little genuine debate that goes on in our culture, very little. We don't debate over issues like abortion or racism or healthcare or Supreme Court nominees. We shout at each other. We call people names and we pick sides. We don't really debate the issues. And so we get what we deserve. This presents a real challenge for us as Christians, because as Christians, the solution to the problem is not just to keep our mouth shut. The solution to the problem isn't to try to have no opinion on these matters. Matter of fact, as Christians, we have extremely strong opinions on these issues. We have strong opinions on these issues because we believe that God has revealed his will in his word, and that that is absolute truth. And because we have been shown the absolute truth, it's our job to share that truth with those who believe all the lies that are going on in our culture. But how do we do that? How do we tell the truth? How do we state our strong biblical opinions in a way that pleases the Lord, that honors him? I think this passage has a lot to say to that issue. God's word would call rudeness, 
boasting and insults, childish behavior. That's what the scriptures would call it, childish behavior. You know, the Bible talks a lot about the nature of children. And interestingly, sometimes when the Bible talks about the nature of children, it talks about children in a positive way. It'll say that we need to be humble like a child or to trust like a child. That's what it means to be childlike. And so when the Bible's talk, talking about us needing to be childlike, it's speaking of that in a positive sense. Be humble, trust like a child. But the Bible also talks about the characteristics of childhood in a negative way and warns us about being childish. Scripturally speaking, I think we can make that distinction between being childlike in a positive sense as opposed to being childish in a negative sense. To be childish, according to Scripture, is to be spiritually immature, self-centered, and worldly in our thinking. For instance, when Paul writes the chapter about love in 1 Corinthians 13, at the end of it he says this, he, says, he talks about when he became mature in his faith, he says he gave up his childish ways. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 14, Paul says that we are given teachers in the church so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And then, of course, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we are to seek solid spiritual food, not spiritual milk, like children. And so we are not to be childish, but to be childlike. And that's what Jesus is teaching. Again, this whole chapter is about Jesus training his disciples, these 12 men that he had taken under his wing to train them to be the leaders of the early church and to spread the gospel to the nations. He's training them intensely so that they can carry on this ministry when he ascends to the Father. And he uses this opportunity that we see in this, in this passage today to teach them about humility by relating it to how we view children. It's a lesson in humility. We have to look at this incident. It's a very short passage, but you look at it in its context, and it'll highlight how immature these disciples are at this point in Jesus' ministry. Earlier, Jesus had told them, we saw this in the middle of the chapter, of chapter 9, where Jesus told them that what he came to do. Peter confesses him to be the Christ, and so he seeks to begin to correct their understanding of what it meant that he was the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, by saying that he came to suffer, to be rejected by the leadership of the Jews, and to die. That's why he came. And then he warned his disciples that if you're going to follow me, then you better be prepared to die. Die to self. Die to this world. That's the life of a discipleship. Jesus died for our sins, but to be his disciple means that repentance, having put our faith in him, repentance means dying to this world. It means sacrifice. It means giving up. And we read that, if you go back to verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then... In last week's passage, you saw that Jesus again reiterated that he had come to quote where it says in verse 45, 
or verse 44, that he would come to be delivered into the hands of men, to suffer, to die, to atone for sin. That's why he came. But it says in verse 45, they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And then, as if to illustrate how thick-headed the disciples are at this point, Luke says that the very next thing, the very next thing that Luke records is a very childish argument among the disciples. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. It's hard to believe in this context that they would break out in an argument over which of them was the greatest. So much for denying self, taking up your cross, and losing your life. Now, again, thinking about what we studied last week, in this context, it's not, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine what triggered this argument. What made them argue about who was the greatest? As we saw last week, for the second time, Jesus took three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and separated them from the other nine and took them up with him to the top of the mountain for a prayer retreat. And we know from last week that what they did, what they saw at the top of the mountain was a unique, one-time-only, spectacular revelation of the divine glory of Christ shining through his human nature in the transfiguration. And along with that, they got to see Moses and Elijah at the top of the mountain. What a great privilege, but only given to Peter, James, and John. While at the bottom of the mountain, they were failing miserably in their ministry. As a father brought to them his son, asking them to heal his son and cast out the demon, and they were unable to do it, as Jesus said, because of their weak faith. And so you can see this distinction. Jesus gives Peter, James, and John this incredible privilege, this glimpse of the glory of the Christ, while at the bottom of the mountain, the other nine disciples are failing, and Jesus come down, comes down and rebukes them for their failure. Now, if you've ever been a parent, and you've ever walked into the room and commended two children and rebuked the other two, you, can, you know what happens when you leave the room. It starts an argument. And I don't know for sure that's what they were arguing about, but it's easy to believe that they were seeing some favoritism towards Peter, James, and John, and it caused division and competition and jealousy among the other disciples. You know, Peter, James, and John, it says, did not tell what had happened at the top of the mountain at that point, but you can bet they were feeling pretty special, feeling a little superior. You know, this is not the only time that they argued about who was the greatest. Matter of fact, this seems to be an ongoing argument. just before the triumphal entry, just before Jesus was to go into Jerusalem to begin the last week of his life where he would go to the cross, just before the triumphal entry, lo and behold, the mother of James and John, picking up on the fact that they were being treated in her mind as favorites, the mother of James and John came up to Jesus and requested that her two sons, James and John, would be given the highest places of honor in the Messiah's kingdom, which would be at his right hand and his left hand. And the text says in the Gospel of Matthew that the other disciples were indignant. They were furious that James and John, through their mother, would try to exalt themselves that way. After the Last Supper, believe it or not, later that week, after the Last Supper, Luke says in chapter 22 that they began this argument again about who was the greatest. 
and no doubt connected to Jesus taking on the garment of servanthood and washing their feet, yet they still had this argument about which of them was the greatest. In order to understand the argument, I think you have to understand, again, we've talked about this before, but their wrong understanding of who Jesus was and why he came. That's at the background of all this argument. He, Peter confessed, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. But too many of the Jews had lost, had misunderstood, had misinterpreted the Old Testament. And they were looking for a Messiah who would be some earthly conquering king, some superhero who would come and lead God's people to defeat all their enemies and set up an earthly kingdom based in Jerusalem here on earth. That's what they were expecting. And so that's why they're, 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 angling, they're elbowing, they're angling for the best spot in the kingdom because Jesus is about to set up his throne. He's about to establish his kingdom, they believed. And they wanted to be high up in that court, high up in that cabinet, so to speak. You, you see the same thing going on throughout all history. Every king in his court had all his advisors all his underlings fighting for position, jealousy, infighting in every king's court, among cabinet members and advisors in a president's office. You've got the same kind of infighting. I bet you've got it in your home, among siblings, even maybe among couples, married couples. I'm certain you've seen it in your workplace. Jealousy, infighting, This shows that pride is no respecter of persons. Because think about who the disciples were. The disciples weren't the rabbis. They weren't the priests. They weren't the elders. They weren't the members of the Sanhedrin. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were from the lower rungs of Jewish society. And yet, they were driven and consumed by pride. It's no respecter of persons. And pride is a deadly sin. Listen to this description in James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You look at the culture around you, and you see disorder in every vile practice. And what James is telling us is that the root of that is the sin of pride. Selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy. James will go on to say in chapter 4 of his letter, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What's interesting is that, for, you know, if when you compare the Gospels, it appears that the disciples thought that Jesus was out of earshot during this argument. That Jesus didn't know what they were arguing about because I don't think they would have had this argument if he was, sitting, if he was standing there in their midst. But it says here in Luke's text that he knew what was going on in their hearts. Here's where you see his divine nature communicating truth to his human nature. He knew that they were arguing about who was the greatest. And so... He gives them a rebuke, a visual rebuke, an object lesson. It says in verse 47, and Jesus took a child. And the word child in the original Greek is the word for little child, like a toddler. He took this little child and he brought him and he sat him down right beside him. Now think about 
A little bit later, John and James, through their mother, trying to angle for the seat at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus because they are seeking after that honor of an earthly kingdom. Jesus says, you want to be at a place of honor in my kingdom? I'll show you what that kind of person looks like. And he puts a little child next to him. In verse 48, he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. What Jesus is saying there is that in the kingdom of God, the values are upside down. It doesn't work like it does in this world. In the kingdom of God, you're actually measured by your lowliness in spirit and how you treat those that this culture considers lowly. In the kingdom of God, you are measured by the lowliness of your spirit and how you treat those who are lowly. In other words, we, how we treat people in this world who have no greatness, no status, no power, no popularity, how we treat them will reveal how much pride is in our heart. The greater your pride, the less regard you have for the lowly, those who have no status. And how we treat those who are lowly, those who have no power, those who have no status, those who have no riches, those who have no popularity, how we treat those people in this world shows how we would treat our Lord himself. In Matthew 25, Jesus says when he comes on judgment day and all mankind is going to stand before Jesus Christ as these judge, he says we're going to know the difference between what he calls the sheep and the goats, the saved and the unsaved. We're going to know the difference by how they treated the lowly. Did you feed the hungry? Did you give drink to the thirsty? Did you visit? Did you welcome the stranger? Did you visit the prisoner? Did you care for the sick? As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, he said. That's the measurement of the kingdom of God. How different that is from the way the world measures your worth. To be childlike, not childish, but to be childlike is not to not care about your own status in this world and to have particular concern for those who don't have status in this world. If you understand that basic, basic principle of the kingdom of God, it's going to have huge implications for the ministry you do as an individual and as the ministry we do as a church. Because it's going to drive our care and concern for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the oppressed, for children for those who don't have power and status in this world. It's interesting, Matthew adds another element to this teaching. The gospel writers, they don't include everything that happened, they don't include all the dialogue, and it's, that's one of the reasons I always compare, what do the other gospel writers say happened in this dialogue? And it is enlightening to see that when you go to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18, he says that when Jesus taught this lesson, this particular lesson to his disciples, he also said this. He said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So not only how do you treat those without status in this world, but do you have the humility of a child? That's what makes you great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'll be honest with you, throughout the years, I've wrestled with this statement of Jesus that we need to be humble like a child because, well, I'm reformed in my theology, which means I believe in total depravity, which, I, which means I believe that we're born into this world thoroughly sinful, 
thoroughly prideful, thoroughly self-centered, and that we will remain that way unless the Lord changes and gives us, changes our heart and gives us a new nature. I also raised five kids. Children, when I think of children, humility is not the first characteristic that comes to mind. There's certainly still a lot of, 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 there's a lot of pride in children. But I think what Jesus is getting at by saying this is that the pride in children is different than the pride that we struggle with as adults. It's, in a sense, it's more, like I say, pure selfishness, unadulterated selfishness in children, a lack of awareness of the needs of others and totally focused on their own needs. That's pride, and it's sinful, and it needs the blood of Christ to cover it. But the pride that we have as adults, that's the same pride, but it's more sophisticated, more disguised. It's more focused on status, isn't it? Because when we become adults, it's all about measuring up to everybody else's standards by being impressive to other people. It's pride-driven, but it's sophisticated in the sense that it's, it covers up who you really are. It portray, it's, you're driven by something that the world will applaud as opposed to seeking the Lord's approval. It's focused on how others think of us. But think about children. How are children different in the way that they express their pride? There is a humility there. There's, there's a, a lack of pride that they haven't acquired yet because they haven't lived in the world that long. And so children are humble enough, for instance, to accept a gift. If I, you know, Jesus says, unless you become humble like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because you can't receive the gift. Heaven is a gift. Romans 6 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, if I were to stand at the back door and hand out $10 bills as a gift to all of you as you left, my guess would be, I'm not going to do this, but my guess would be, I'm going to keep it in theory, not, I'm not going to test it out, but my theory is that most adults would try to refuse it. But I don't think a single child would. They would gladly take the $10 bill. Because children are humble in a way that adults aren't. Why? Because adults have to be self-sufficient. I don't need your $10. I'm fine. I guarantee you that most of the people you know that haven't accepted the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, you dig deep enough, you're going to find out it's because of pride. They won't acknowledge they need a savior. Children accept gifts very easily. Second reason, second way in which children are humble in a way that adults aren't is that children are humble enough to be real. Children have not yet learned that there's any real purpose or advantage to being tactful or diplomatic. They'll sit at the dining table, the, 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 they'll sit at the table for supper and they'll say, Mom, this, this food stinks, this food is yucky. They'll look across the table and say, Dad, you're getting fat. And that's not acceptable behavior for adults. But adults think it. They just don't say it. Why? Because of pride. Children are real. They lack pretentiousness. They don't understand why they have to eat with their mouth closed. 
They don't understand why their clothes have to match. Why they have to brush their teeth or take a bath. They just don't understand. They're real in that sense. They're unpretentious. They're blunt. They're unpolished. But they're real. And therefore, they're more teachable than adults. They're more teachable. I think that's part of what Jesus is getting at. Another way in which children are more humble than adults is that they're humble enough to trust and humble enough to depend upon others. You know, children to a fault are not at all hesitant to ask for help. Many times my children would come to me and they'd say, Dad, can you help me with my homework? Which really meant, Dad, could you do my homework for me? Could you write this essay for me? Can you give me the answer to this question? Or Dad, you know, they come in from outside, Dad, I can't get the mower started, which means they tried twice and it didn't work. They're not afraid to ask for help. But when we become adults, we go to the other extreme, and we see it as a sign of weakness when we ask for help. We are driven to self-sufficiency. We are measured by our self-sufficiency. And Jesus says, you've got to stop being like that. You've got to die to that nature. You've got to die to that identity. From the time that we are toddlers, the pressure is on us to grow up. But what do we usually mean by that as parents or teachers or siblings when we say to children, you need to grow up? Too often what we're really saying is you need to be more sophisticated in your pride. You need to cover your pride better. You need to become more independent. You need to be more socially acceptable. You need to be a success. You need to get those A's. You need to get your degree. You need to get that six-figure income. You need to be a success. And it's all an appeal to pride. Jesus says, you need to become like a little child in order to enter the kingdom. And you want to be great in my kingdom? Be humble. Make humility. Being lowly in spirit. I I encourage you in your own devotional time, your Bible study at home, do a word study on lowly in scripture. And just see how the, the Bible talks about those who are lowly, particularly lowly in spirit. It is the measure of greatness in the kingdom of Christ. Well, Jesus finishes then his lesson by stating the principle. He gave an object lesson. He gave a visual that would stick with the disciples the rest of their lives. And then he states the principle clearly. And here's the principle. It's in verse 48. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. You know, Jesus, again, is just trying to drive that point home. It's one of the key principles of his kingdom. It's one of the key principles for the life of a disciple. That the first shall be last and the last shall be first. To save your life, you've got to lose it. To live, you've got to die to self. His upside-down kingdom, the upside-down values of his kingdom, you need to understand that in order to live as his disciple. And so if you want to be great, You need to be least. You know, Jesus wasn't the first one to teach this. This is an Old Testament principle as well. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. He who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. A total disregard for status is what he's talking about. Not caring if you are least in the eyes of men. A total disregard for status, that's childlikeness. Pride is childishness. He's calling us to be childlike. 
because that's what it means to be Christ-like. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of this lowliness in spirit. He said it directly in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He said, I am gentle and lowly in spirit. And you want to be like him? Then make being lowly in spirit a goal of your life. He says in Mark chapter 10, verses 43 through 45, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be ser- to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross is the ultimate example of lowliness in spirit. The cross is the place where you see the Son of God giving up his life for somebody else. Being regarded as, to use the phrase Paul used, the scum of the earth, which is what a crucified criminal was considered by the the Roman culture. To be lowly, to totally disregard any sense of status in this world for the sake of loving God and loving your neighbor. And of course, the classic passage, and you know this passage well, but in light of what Jesus is teaching here in Luke chapter 9, listen to what Paul says about Jesus himself in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the ultimate example of lowliness of spirit, of childlikeness. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross And by humbling himself, he received the greatest name above all names, Jesus, the Lord of all. That's what it means to follow him, is to follow that path. You know, Paul wrote a letter once to a very status-driven church. That church was the church in Corinth. If you've ever studied the, the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, you know that the Corinthians lived in a very worldly city much like our own culture. And they were very driven by the world's status system. You know, wisdom, even, even the, 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 the status system within the church in terms of spiritual gifts, they were all about earthly status, all about competing to see who is the greatest. Listen to what Paul says to them in the middle of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to what he says. He says, I'm writing this to you that none of you may be puffed up in in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? going to challenge you again. Go home and write that on a slip of paper and tape it to your mirror so the first t- when you get up in the morning, the very first thing you see is that question. What do you have that you did not receive? 
If you understand the right answer to that question biblically, you understand the key to biblical humility and being lowly in spirit. You know, I've always said that Reformed Christians, and if you don't understand what that title means, I'll, you'll have to ask me later, but those of us who believe and teach Reformed theology, we ought to be the most humble people on this planet because no other theology stresses that we have nothing to offer to God in and of ourselves. We believe in total depravity, not that we're as evil as we possibly could be, but that every part of our, 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 our being is self-centered, pride-driven, self-glorying, selfish. Every part of our being is corrupted by that self-centered nature. That's who we are. And we believe that not only are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but we believe that even that faith is a gift from God. If God had not changed our hearts by his grace alone, we would never have had faith. What do you have that you did not receive? Faith and everything that comes through faith is a gift from God. If you live with that understanding, you will be lowly in spirit. You will be childlike. You will be humble. As Christians, yes, we know the truth. And we live in a culture that is full of lies. And we are called to tell the truth. To tell the truth about who Jesus is. To tell the truth about why he came. To tell the truth about abortion. To tell the truth about justice. To tell the truth about racism. We're called to tell the world the truth. Because they're believing lies. But what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here in this very short passage. Is that the manner of how you do it is important. It's the tone. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in humility. Speak the truth, understanding that you don't have any truth that you didn't first receive by God's grace. It'll change your tone, it'll change your attitude, and it'll make your message powerfully affected because then the power will come from the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this time this morning. It's painful. It's really a part of dying to self to take some time to stop and consider how much pride permeates our thinking and our attitudes and our words and our actions. And Lord, we've been blind to it. Thank you, Lord, through your word and by your spirit, you've opened our eyes to see it a little more clearly. May we not forget it, but may we confess it. And Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you will enable us more and more to repent of it. Teach us, Lord, to be childlike and forgive us for our childishness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.